Hey friends, good morning. It is Gary Morris from Vancouver. Thank you for all of you uh, for tuning in today. Good morning to those of you in the West and good afternoon to those of you in the East. Uh, first off, listen, I really apologize, guys. We're about uh, five minutes late getting started here this morning. Uh, we had some uh, some issues that came up unexpectedly, uh, but we're super, super happy to be here. Uh, I am really excited about uh, my guest today. It's interesting, uh, before sort of doing the homework on uh, Derek Sievers, um, you know, I didn't know a whole bunch about him. I'd heard the name. Uh, we had had him at uh, uh, at, at Mortgage Architects a couple of years ago, doing some work with uh, with Dustin. The feedback was just absolutely incredible. But as preparation for this call, I just became unbelievably fascinated with this individual. His story is so uh, incredible. I want to start off by just sort of uh, reading a short bio that we put together for him to give you a basic understanding uh, and background of Derek. Derek uh, Sievers uh, has been a musician, producer, circus performer, entrepreneur, TED speaker, and book publisher. He is known for his quotable insights and succinct writing style. Derek is best known as the founder of CD Baby, a professional musician since 1987. He started CB, CD Baby by accident in 1998 when he was selling his own CDs on his website and friends asked if he could sell theirs too. CD Baby was the largest seller of independent music on the internet with over 100 million in sales and over 150,000 musician clients. In 2008, Derek sold CD Baby for $22 million and gave all of his money to charity. Derek wanted to focus on new ventures to benefit musicians, including his new company, Muckwork, where teams of efficient assistants help musicians do their uncreative, dirty work. His books include How to Live, uh, Hell Yeah or No, Your Music and People, Anything um, You Want. Um, and Derek is a full-time dad to a 10-year-old and currently lives in New Zealand. Derek, good morning. How are you? Hi, thanks, Gary. And hey, everybody, it's uh, my fault that uh, we're five minutes late. It's eight o'clock in the morning here in New Zealand, and I tuned in just in time instead of 15 <laughs> minutes early. I'm sorry. So blame well, I, me, not Gary. You know, we're just so thrilled to have you, Derek. We completely understand that. And we knew there was going to be a, uh, obviously, a huge time difference from, you know, where you are to here. Uh, we're just really, really thrilled we're here. To all of our viewers today, guys, uh, we're going to give away a whole pile of Derek's books. So if you're making a comment or posting or uh, resharing on social media, uh, we're going to send out uh, books to, to probably everyone. Uh, it's an incredible book, Anything You Want, 40 Lessons for a New Kind of Entrepreneur. Um, Derek, let's sort of maybe just start from the, the very beginning. I, I sort of, you know, you're so uh, thoughtful on how you, you know, sort of explain your story. Um, going back to 1969, obviously, looking at your timeline, you were born in California. You've done a lot, a lot of things. I mean, you started off playing uh, piano, I believe. Uh, by was it violin and clarinet mm -hmm. and what kind of kid were you were you were you an always you know entrepreneur uh, kid were you were you raised in that kind of household I mean how did this happen no I think um when I was 14 I heard like this music that like this heavy metal music that was like that's the sound of my soul and it just gave me this drive to like play electric guitar and that's what I want to do. And so shortly after I became uh, just really focused or maybe even obsessed with being a successful musician. So I think a lot of the things I've done in life have come from that. Like the, because I wanted to be a successful musician, I would read these self-help books on how to be like a better person, how to be more effective, how to be more productive, how to be, how to communicate better, how to um, uh, work harder. And it was, it was all in the goal of being a successful musician. And then later, once you learn those life skills, you can apply them to other things, which is why I think it's always great to have something you're focused on, no matter what it is, even if you're just focused on being the best, uh, you know, checkers player or um, emu farm raiser. Um, if you just have anything that you're focused on, it gives you the life skills that you can apply to other things later. Yeah, yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, as I look through sort of your timeline and uh, and your bio, I mean, you've done a lot of incredible things. Uh, you spent, was it 10 years in the circus? Yeah, yeah. When I was 18 years old, I was at uh, Berklee College of Music, and I got a call from an agent asking if I could go perform at a pig show in Vermont for $75. And I was living in Boston, so it was like a $53 round trip bus ticket to go to Vermont. But I was like, 75 bucks, yes! It was like my first paying gig. So I said yes to go play at the pig show. I just showed up with my guitar and walked around 
playing while people were judging pigs and uh, came back home and the booking agent called me and said, I heard you did a really good job. So, uh, look, we've got this circus and we're looking for a new musician for the circus. So I said, OK, sure. You know, what does it pay? And it, again, it paid 75 bucks per show. I was thrilled. And uh, I ended up doing it for, for 10 years. I ended up being the ringleader MC. If you came to the circus, you would have thought it was my show. Yeah, isn't that uh, wow? And so, what, what, so what sort of lessons? Was there any lessons? I mean, obviously traveling. I mean, they say that the like of a you know of a of, of someone in the circus, or uh, I mean, it must be incredibly colorful and very interesting. And you know, anything you took away from that that really sort of like you carried <laughs> with you? <laughs> I've I've learned the hard way the uh, the truism: it's better to apologize than ask permission. <laughs> uh, you don't go into a venue and say, hey, um, is it okay if we juggle fire here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't do that. Instead, yeah. you just do the show, you know, then you get ready, you put the yeah. um, gasoline on the torches, you light them on fire and you start juggling. And if there's somebody running around with a clipboard going like this, you know, you just apologize to them later. Um, yeah, yeah. So I learned that. But also I learned that um, you got to just roll with anything. You know, the yeah. circus would pull into these towns in the middle of New England somewhere. And uh, sometimes they forgot we were coming. Uh, you know, I mean, we did over a thousand shows. So, of course, yeah. it's inevitable that, you know, a couple times you show up and they're just like, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, forgot. OK, um, could you just do a show over here for no people? And you just learn to roll with whatever happens. Yeah, so I yeah. think you know what? I mean, that's a, uh, that's a great, you know, sort of lesson for life, right? Because, you know, stuff's going to happen all the time. There's another train looking to run you over. There's disruptions and breakdowns and failures. And, you know, it can paralyze you or, or, or it can power you. Um, and, you know, what a great, uh, what a great story and what a great background. So it's interesting because you were a musician for, you know, um, for all these years, including those years with, with you know, the circus. Um, and then you decided, I guess you, did you, did you start, did you, did you really do your own CD? You actually made your own album and that was sort of the start of CD Baby back in the, back in the day? Yeah. So I was a professional musician in New York City um, for many years. So in there, I just recorded my own album. But this is 1997. So like there wasn't even PayPal back then. And Amazon was just a bookstore. So if you were an independent musician with a CD to sell, uh, there was literally nowhere on the internet that would sell it for you. Um, so I had I got my own credit card merchant account, which back in the day was harder. It was like a thousand dollars in setup fees, and you had to incorporate. You had to have a separate business account, and they uh, actually sent an inspector to my location to make sure I was a valid business. Like it was a lot of paperwork. So when I was done with that, I had a credit card merchant account, and so I told my musician friends in New York City they had it, that I had done this. And all my musician friends were like, dude, can can you sell my CD through that thing? Yeah. And I went, huh, I guess so. Sure. All right. As a favor to friends. And then, yeah, CD Baby, my company grew out of that. Yeah, it's interesting because you talk about, you know, sort of you started a business accidentally. Right. And 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 you sort of you didn't you actually didn't even really want a business. Right. Yeah. No. You know, uh, and then it just maybe walk us through sort of like what what happened there. And, and you know, obviously it got traction. I mean, you were the early days you were. Yeah, I guess the only relationship you knew previously was was that of music, you know, sort of uh, distributors that, you know, it was their way, you know, and they told you how much and how much profit and how to operate the business. And, and you know, you had, and I, I read in your book, and you had sort of four different uh, items that you, when you started the business, you wanted to make sure that you controlled. You want to maybe just... Yeah, the this. utopia. But yeah, I mean, I think the idea was like, I wasn't doing it for the money. I was doing it as a favor to my musician friends that I, I considered myself a musician. I was a full-time musician. I was still pursuing that same dream since the age of 14. I was trying to be a successful musician. So the fact that, oh yeah, there's a weird picture of me in the middle. Um, so <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the fact that, uh, damn, you really did your homework. You found some old photos of me. Wow. <laughs> um, so the fact that, um, that I was selling CDs for friends, I didn't want that to distract from my musician career, right? So I decided to make it utopian. I was like, well, as long as I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to make it like a dream come true from a musician's point of view. Because I've dealt with the music industry enough, and it's just like, you know, this kind of, ah, kid, you'll get paid if you're lucky, maybe next year, you know? Right, exactly. um, So I was like, no, I'm going to I'm gonna make this like a dream come true from a musician's point of view. And so that was my main inspiration. Even the, 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 uh, the money that I charged 
was just enough to compensate me for my time spent on this thing. I wasn't trying to make a profit. Um, but then it grew to a size where I got the economies of scale where it's like I priced it at like $35 to set up an album in my store. And that's when it cost me to do it once. But pretty soon, like 50 albums a day started arriving and I learned to automate things. So suddenly, like, you know, it didn't actually cost me 35 anymore. It cost me more like $6. And so it became very profitable, but not by design. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what a, uh, and, and so you started the business in, uh, was it 1998? Yeah. And you sold the business in 2008, 10 years later, 2008, it was 10 years. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because one of the things that I really liked about your book is I really liked how you boil it down to 40 lessons. And, you know, um, if you wouldn't mind, Derek, I wouldn't mind just like, you know, sort of reading a couple of those lessons and, and getting your comments on them uh, for you. I, sure. I found, you know, it's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a voracious reader. I love to do it. I'm much like you, lots of personal development stuff. Um, but I really love the simplicity of your books. I just love, you know, the one hour read. Um, very digestible, and I think it's available for anyone. I mean, and just the lessons were so great. I want to maybe just go through a couple of them because I'd, I'd love to maybe hear your your, your feedback. Um, you talk about uh, what's your compass, right? You know, um, many people think they know why uh, they are doing. Sorry, many people don't know wh uh, why um, they are doing it or what they're doing. You speak of sort of some common themes, um, uh, themes. Um, and that was, you know, making the company is a great way to start to improve uh, the world and to improve yourself. Um, success comes from persistently improving and inventing, not from consistently promoting what's not working, which I thought was very powerful. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Any, any, any thoughts on any, any thoughts on that as far as. Oh, that's just, um, I learned all of these things the hard way. <laughs> yeah. I think it really helps that. I spent 15 years as a very struggling musician. You know, the doors did not swing wide open for me as a musician. It was a it was a real uphill battle. Every it felt like every door was locked, you know. Yeah. So when when after 15 years of that, I was the guy running CD Baby, suddenly I was considered to be in the industry and I was the one helping all these thousands of musicians uh sell their music. So it felt like suddenly I was on the inside. So now I could be like a spy telling musicians <laughs> like how things work from the inside. But from having been a struggling musician for 15 years, so I knew what it was like to be them. Uh, I think, you know, I think the, the meta lesson in this is that um, I see a lot of people who just want to start a business. They don't even know what they're just like i just want to start a business right. uh which is to me always sounds like somebody who's saying like i just want to wear a bandage you know yeah. even, i don't have a wound anywhere i just want a bandage yeah it's like no it's it's to me a business is something that you do to solve a problem that nobody else is solving it's a bandage it's not a um yeah it needs a wound yeah yeah it makes a lot of sense um I want to just kind of go over again. I mean, because I see this all the time, right? Success comes from persistently improving and inventing, not from consistently promoting what's not working. God, Derek, we see that so often, right? We see people that have a they have a, a game plan or a business plan or something they think and they push and push and they sell and they pitch and they present and they, you know, and and you talk about it being in in in, in you know in your book about it being a, a hit record. Like you, you know, a musician might write a hundred songs and not get any traction. All of a sudden, boom, they hit yeah. one and it hits. And you talk about spending yeah. your time, right, on on you know on things that are giving you that return, and and walking away from you know everything that maybe you thought you knew, right? I mean, it's yeah, I thought it was very fascinating. Yeah, you have to be. You have to remember that the reason you're doing this is for other people, not for you, mm -hmm. and it has to come from that place. It's selfish when people hold on to one idea and they just keep pushing it, even though it's clear that nobody wants it. Um, it's like the, the, we call them a boar, right? The B-O-O-R, the person that like walks into a party and acts like a jerk and doesn't pick up on the fact that nobody's laughing and, you know. Um, but if you're actually doing it for other people, then you can pick up on the fact that like, okay, I'm going to put this into the world. And the world goes, eh. You go, all right, I'll put that into the world. And the world yeah. goes, eh. You say, all right, how about that? And the world goes, ooh, we like right. that. You know, yeah. so I think you have to not get too attached 
uh, to your ideas. I like the fact that in English, uh, we use the word release. You know, I released a new book. I released a new album. And I, I like the double meaning of that world. It's like words, like just let it go. Yeah. You've released yeah. it into the world. Don't hold on to it. Go. Yeah, I think I think the, I think the, the lesson or how you summarize it. If it's not a hit, switch. Right. Stop doing yeah. things that aren't working and uh, move on. We're going to try a lot of different things. Um, yeah. The other thing uh, that I really liked, and and I, I want to maybe just I'm going to play a video that I, I really liked, and you know, um, it's how to start a movement, right? And you know, going <laughs> okay. from a single nut, right, uh, to you know something extraordinary. David, would you mind playing that video for me? It's about two and If you've learned a lot about leadership and making a movement, then let's watch a movement happen start to finish in under three minutes and dissect some lessons. First, of course, a leader needs the guts to stand alone and look ridiculous. But what he's doing is so simple, it's almost instructional. This is key. You must be easy to follow. Now here comes the first follower with a crucial role. He publicly shows everyone else how to follow. Notice how the leader embraces him as an equal. So it's not about the leader anymore. It's about them, plural. Notice how he's calling to his friends to join in. So it takes guts to be a first follower. You stand out and you brave ridicule yourself. Being a first follower is an underappreciated form of leadership. The first follower transforms a lone nut into a leader. If the leader is the flint, the first follower is the spark that really makes the fire. Now here's the second follower. This is a turning point. It's proof the first has done well. Now it's not a lone nut and it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd and a crowd is news. A movement must be public. Make sure outsiders see more than just the leader. Everyone needs to see the followers, because new followers emulate followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, then three more immediately. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point, and now we have a movement. As more people jump in, it's no longer risky. If they were on the fence before, there's no reason not to join in now. They won't stand out, they won't be ridiculed, and they will be part of the in-crowd if they hurry. And over the next minute, you'll see the rest who prefer to stay part of the crowd, because eventually they'd be ridiculed for not joining. And ladies and gentlemen, that is how a movement is made. So let's recap what we've learned. If you are a version of the shirtless dancing guy, all alone, remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals, making everything clearly about the movement, not you. Be public, be easy to follow. But the biggest lesson here, did you catch it? Leadership is over-glorified. Yes, it started with the shirtless guy, and he'll get all the credit, but you saw what really happened. It was the first follower that transformed a lone nut into a leader. There's no movement without the first follower. See, we're told that we all need to be leaders, but that would be really ineffective. The best way to make a movement, if you really care, is to courageously follow and show others how to follow. When you find a lone nut doing something great, have the guts to be the first person to stand up and join in. Derek, when, that was, when I first discovered that, it was sent to me from Dustin Woodhouse. I mean, it really resonated with us because I was that lone nut when we started Dominion Lady mm -hmm. Center. It's now the largest you know, uh, company in the country and all of those, you know, that first person that jumped in and all of those initial people are still with us many years later and the journey's just been absolutely incredible, but that really resonated. Where, where did sort of that whole thought process come from? Cause I think you turned that into a Ted talk, correct? Yeah. Um, or Ted turned it into a talk. Right, uh, Ted, exactly. I, I just saw that video bouncing around YouTube one day, somebody forwarded it and said, huh, check it out. But it was just, a guy dancing with people joining him. But I had just recently read two books, uh, Tribes by Seth Godin and The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. And so as I watched this video, I thought, huh, okay, this is kind of funny, but more importantly, like this is a visual representation of what I've just been learning about how, how a following starts. That's what uh, The Tipping Point was all about. I was like, huh, let me just share my observation. So I posted on my blog, that video was just my commentary below it. Like, you know what's really interesting about this? Notice how da da da, and it really takes that first follower. Like, that's the yeah. tipping point. Because you can go to YouTube and you can see that that shirtless guy was dancing for a long time 
before that first guy finally yeah, yeah. joined in. And as soon as that first guy joined in, then the second, then the rest. So I thought, yeah, this is really interesting. So I just posted it on my blog. Uh, it was kind of a hit right away. And so then the TED conference asked me to do it on stage. So, uh, yeah, I did that on the big main stage TED conference where it's like, there's like Al Gore, there's Bill Gates, there's the guy who start the two guys that started Google, there's the guy that invented Unix. Oh my God. It was like the most uh, intimidating audience ever. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's so well presented. I mean, the way you uh, narrate it, it's just, it, it's, it resonates so well. I congratulate you on that. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, so much fun. You, you, you've sort of, you all of your communication, I, I, you know, the, one of the missions I read was your mission is to make people smile. Uh, and I think it's a really, really good mission. And, you know, something else that you did that I thought was fascinating. Um, and you probably know where I'm going with the uh, jet. Um, you know, you were, you were running this fulfillment business. Now you, you, you know, had built this very successful company. You had, you know, 150,000 sort of musicians and artists on it. And every single person who ordered a CD used to, you know, get an automatic, you know, very thank you for ordering the CD email. And I guess you came up one day with, with the concept of a new email. I'm going to put the email up, but this is the email that actually went out. We're going to read it quickly. Your CD has been gently taken from our CD baby shelves with sterilized contamination, free gloves and placed into a satin or placed onto a satin pillow. A team of 50 employees inspected your CD and polished it to make sure it was in the best possible condition before mailing. Our packaging specialist from Japan lit a candle and a hush fell over the crowd as he put your CD into the finest gold line box that money can buy. We all had a wonderful celebration afterwards and the whole party, uh, party marched down the street to the post office where the entire town of Portland waved bon voyage to your package on its way to join you in our private CD baby jet on this day, Friday, June 6th. I hope you had a wonderful time shopping at CD Baby. We sure did. Your picture is on our wall as customer of the year. We're all exhausted, but can't wait for you to come back to CDBaby.com. Tell us about that, where that came from, and just the power and impact of that one silly, yeah. fun, lighthearted email. Okay, I'll, I'll really do the specifics fun. first, and then we'll get to the real lesson Hunter. from it. So the, yeah, it was just a guy in my bedroom starting this little thing, as I said, to like sell my friends CDs. <clears throat> and then it, uh, and then I, I didn't call it CD Baby until a few months later. Uh, at first it was just like on my band's website. So once it was CD Baby, um, I did this thing and it had a very typical email confirmation, you know, your order has been shipped. And I just looked at that and I thought, I can do better than that. Like that's, that's just cheesy. That's so normal. And so I wrote that email that you just read in like 10 minutes in 1998. And and it just made it the automated email that everybody got. But then CD Baby ended up selling like, you know, a few million CDs. So a few million people got that email and it spread so widely. People would post it on their blogs, post it on their social media accounts, say, oh, my God, guys, you got to see this hilarious uh, confirmation I just got from this little record store. And so then thousands of people ended up coming and becoming new customers of CD Baby because they heard of it from this email. So... Um, and Seth Godin even put it in one of his books, and I, th I think Tim Ferriss did too, um, which to me is just funny. You know, it's like 10 minutes in 1998 I wrote that little thing. So I think the lesson is it really helps to look at everything you're doing and ask yourself why. Like, why am I doing this? Like, why do we have a reception desk? Why do we answer the phones or not? And to question these things... And not just do what everybody else does, but ask yourself, like, why am I doing this thing? And what would be the, if that's the, the point that I'm doing, then what would be the best way to do it? And to think of these things from scratch instead of just imitating others. That's all. Yeah, yeah, and incredibly clever. And, you know, I think sort of what it reminds us is that, you know, it gives us license to have fun. Right. You know, our business is not just boom, boom, boom and very serious and only the facts, man. And, you know, like lighten up, have some fun, giggle a little bit, because I think, you know, uh, the world around you wants to giggle and have some fun, too. And, you know, I think we take our businesses too serious sometime. And I thought I really loved that. I thought it was really, really uh, very, very, very great. Um, so let's talk about I mean, listen, you, you've you, you know, running a a the business that you started you you got a lot of sort of high level you know acclaim and you got a lot of recognition and uh you talk in the book about steve jobs uh dissing uh you in a keynote can you share that story with us uh, yeah 
God, that feels like two lifetimes ago. Um, yeah, I, Apple. Uh, so CD Baby started doing digital distribution uh, when Apple asked us to. So we had uh, 200,000 musicians, so about 2 million songs in our database. And then Apple uh, launched the iTunes Music Store, which was like selling 99 cent downloads for the first time. And so what they, they launched it with only the major labels. But then right afterwards, they called us and a few others to their office and held this little presentation with Steve Jobs himself comes out and says, all right, everybody, you know, we want every piece of music ever recorded in the iTunes Music Store. We don't care how deep your catalog is. We want everything. I said, great. I was like, okay, we got two million songs. They said, great. And um, so they sent me the contract. I signed it immediately. I sent it back. But then we heard nothing from them. Like, just nothing. Um, and I had already told all my musicians, like, okay, we're on. The iTunes Music Store wants every piece of music ever recorded. Let's do this thing. I built this whole system to deliver it. I charged a musicians $40, which, again, was just, like, recouping. That's what it actually cost me yeah. to grab their CD off the shelf, stick it into an Apple PC the way that uh, Apple insisted we do it, put it into a Mac. And um, and upload it to their servers. Uh, so I, th I charged, I think it was about 5,000 musicians opted in. So it was like $200,000. And then Steve Jobs gets on stage. So like months went by and they weren't returning our contract. And I would try to contact them and no response. So then Steve Jobs went on stage and he said, yeah, you know, all the other shops have have all this music that we just don't want that music <laughs> you know like we believe that record labels do a good job they filter yeah did you know that there are some musicians or some places out there that say for 40 dollars they'll just put anybody onto the itunes music store well we don't want that stuff um and like my heart just sank like you motherfucker yeah, yeah, yeah like, exactly <laughs> you said you want to yeah. i put my ass on the line because you said so um so I just like, I was like, all right, I give up. And so I emailed all 5,000 musicians. I said, sorry, everybody. Um, Steve Jobs changed his mind, apparently. He doesn't want your music anymore. So I refunded everybody's $50. I took a $200,000 loss because I had already spent that money to, you know, do all this digitizing and build the system. And then the next day after I re refunded everybody's money, Apple sent the signed contract back to us and said, OK, let's begin. We want everything. I went, you are uh, kidding me. What did you do? I was like, did you do it? Yeah, I gave him. I was like, fucking Apple. So, yeah. yeah. Sometimes yeah, people ask why I don't use, uh, why I use Linux, not Mac. And I said, oh, just, you'll see. Yeah. Read my book. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Uh, it's interesting because we talk about creating a movement. We talk about building followers. You know, you explain a business, your own business, big or small, of your own personal little private um, sort of universe where you make yeah. the rules. And I thought that was really interesting the way you described that. Um, but one of the other things you, you talk about, and I think this is really important, you know, is you say proudly exclude people. And I always explain to people ourselves, listen, guys, in business, if you're doing well, not everyone's going to like you. There's always competitors and there's, you know, for whatever reason, people have their own mind and their own free will. And I said, you know, you look at the United States of America, the largest, you know, the strongest country in the world. And, you know, the president, you know, gets in with 50 or 51 percent. That means 49 percent of the people don't like the other president or actively, you know, hate him. Um, and you talk about excluding people, right? And proudly excluding people um, who maybe aren't on the same page as you. Can you just sort of articulate that for us? Yeah, I mean, like you said, it applies to everything. Um, you just can't please everybody and you shouldn't try because if you're trying to please everybody, you'll create something really generic and of no use to anybody because you're trying to be of use to everybody. So instead, I think it really, really helps to have a niche. There's a brilliant book on this called Positioning by... The author is Reese and Trout, R-I-E-S and T-R-O-U-T. Brilliant, legendary masterpiece of a book about finding your niche. Do you guys have NyQuil up there? You know that coffee? Yeah, we sure do. Yeah. Okay. So this is the story they tell in the book. I love this little story. I, now, see, this is like me as a teenager wanting to be a successful musician. And I heard this story and I, and I applied it metaphorically, which is this, that before NyQuil came along, you would go to the the pharmacy, and there would just be a bunch of cold medicines saying, we'll make your cold better. Um, and then NyQuil came along and said, 
This is the nighttime medicine. All those other guys, those are for the day, but right. we're for the night. And so suddenly it's like you can imagine the pie chart that used to have, you know, cut into little 20 slices. So suddenly NyQuil has half the pie chart and all the rest are uh, put into the other half. And it was just a, such a nice way to describe, like, once you claim your niche, it puts all the other generic guys kind of like off to the side. And so now it's nighttime. There's only one medicine they think of. So as a musician, I thought of this like say, like declaring what style of music we do. It's like this is a f pop funk. We only do pop funk. You know, this is our style. And say if I was running a recording studio for a while and I'd say, this is a recording studio for drums. You can go record everything else everywhere else. But what if you need to record drums, you come to my recording studio. I just record drums. Um, and that became the niche. Right. And so I think this applies to anything you do. You can say, I'm not trying to be everything to anybody. Like mm -hmm. you could say, like, I only do say, industrial real estate. I only do back end database programming. I only do, you know, right now, I only write pop philosophy books. Um, and it just really helps to own your niche and to just proudly let go of that other 99 percent that. uh that doesn't want i love it right so it's the old saying right niche is great riches um you know we talk about in your book about you know probably exclude people you talk about a uh, club in la i think it's called hotel cafe and it's a no talking mm -hmm. club right like big yeah. red you know uh, do not talk you'll get escorted out of here you cannot be in our club yeah. you cannot talk and you know i know at the time you wrote the book you said it was the most popular club in la right because yeah. they just did not if you were a purist and you wanted to listen to musicians then yeah. you don't want to have a conversation. You're not there. You're there to listen to the actual music. And they became, you know, because they chose their, their wheelhouse or their niche, they became the most popular club in LA. Right. I thought yeah. it was a great, great story. I mean, um, yeah. Thank you for going through that and explaining that to us. Um, the other thing that you talk about is, you know, you say it's important to know, um, you know, what you're staying focused on, right. And to really know what you want in your business uh, instead of doing what others think you should be doing in your business. And I see that a lot. I mean, on this call today, we have hundreds or thousands of people who have their own business and they're running it a certain way because they think it should be run a certain way. But you talk about your business being your own little universe. Right? And I really like that. And, you know, and it's, not it's actually sorry, Gary, it's, it's related to this niche thing we just talked about, like right. this, this whole idea of like make your own universe and make it the way you want it. It's part of the niching in the market to say, like, I'm not going to be like the other people. I know that most people do it this way. I'm going to do it this way. And it helps make you that person that does things that way, that people, it helps you stand out. Like, again, back to that little email I wrote. It was just 10 minutes of my time. It was such a silly little thing. But I think what people responded to was like, whoa, this is so weird and different. Right. And so it just, you don't want to do what other people do. You just want to, like, find your own unique way to do it your way, according to your values, not trying to please everybody, but almost like a... A, uh, an expression of yourself. That's why I think business is creative. Yeah, I, uh, I love it. And uh, there again, it's just, you know, in your book, it's just so simple the way you explain all this stuff. Um, a couple other ones that sort of resonated with me. And, you know, this one sounds pretty elementary, but care about your customers more than you care about yourself. Uh, it's not elementary, though. You know what I mean? I know firsthand that, you know, people get caught. I always say to people, right, when you got a problem in your business, solve for the emotion, don't solve for the problem. Trying to figure mm. out a finger that, you know, you did, you know, this is the reason why this happened. It's okay. I'll take care of it. But the reason why this happened is because, you know, you made a mistake or it started with, you know, your person like that doesn't, you know, that doesn't solve any problem. Right. And the person is still unhappy. Even if you solve it and give them what they want and make it all right. If you're pointing finger or looking to, for the, for the blame game, right. You're just, you'll never ever win. And, and you talk about, you know, caring about your customers more than you caring about yourself. Is there anything you can add yeah. to that? <laughs> I think you you have to feel secure. I think a lot of the worst business practices come from a business feeling insecure. Like, well, if we give away free ketchup on the hot dogs, then then everybody's going to take more ketchup than we can afford. Yeah. We'll go bankrupt. You know, it comes from this place of scarcity and fear. But if instead, if you just kind of relax into a confident state of abundance, um, and know that you're doing this for your customers, then you can be generous. And if you, if if you were to oversimplify 
what we consider good business practices and bad business practices, it generally comes down to being generous or not. That mm. if you're generous, people will love you and they'll tell their friends about you because you're generous. And it's all the cases where a business is being very ungenerous, being stingy, that we kind of grumble and, you know, do business mm. with them reluctantly. So it all mm. comes down to that, being generous. You tell a story about um, the cab driver that you were uh, with in, in, I think you were in Las Vegas, when he said, this town was way better when the mob ran it, right? Because yeah. when the mob ran it, they just think they cared about dollars in, dollars out. It was fairly simple. It was an easy, easy to run that business and they weren't grinding yeah. on every nickel. And, you know, and you see, yeah. see it today. I mean, you know, everything you do, your Vegas has become, you know, mm. extraordinarily expensive where you used to go there and gamble and everything was free at one point. Right. And it's just, it's, it's crazy. All little things change. Yeah. You know, it comes down to optimizing. Right. Like if you, that was the difference between the mob approach, according to the taxi driver, not that I know anything, yeah. but uh, the taxi <laughs> driver said when, when the mob ran this town, all they cared about was the bottom line. Are we making money? Good. He said, yeah. once the MBAs came in, they try to micromanage like every square foot of floor space and try to make sure that every square foot is getting its maximum profit it can get. And I think a lot of misery comes from trying to maximize. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that you say in there again, it, you know, it's not rocket science, but the way you explain it is is so simple. And I love your your sort of uh, thoughts on it. it is little things make the difference. You know, you said you had a policy, you know, you had this this big company, you had thousands of CDs being shipped, you had phones everywhere, though, because you wanted that phone answered immediately all the time. Right? Like, you know, and I talk to people all the time about speed response being one of the most easiest wealth secrets, right? Especially in the world yeah. we live in today, where there's auto responders, you can't get through and you can't speak to somebody. Um, someone actually picking up the phone was a very novel idea. Um, hmm. The little things just like that, that making people smile. Is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, well, again, I learned this the hard way. Um, right. <laughs> I thought I knew why people liked CD Baby. But then I would go to these conferences where I would meet hundreds of musicians. And more importantly, I would hear musicians tell other musicians about CD Baby. So like every now and then, like some musician is, you know, it's got and talking to me and then somebody will talk to him and they'll say like, what's CD Baby? Or why, you know, why did you go to a CD Baby instead of, you know, one of these other companies? And they'd see and over and over and over again. The thing that blew my mind, I was never expecting is they'd say, oh, yeah, you know what's cool about CD Baby? They pick up the phone. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you can call them. You call them and they answer on the second ring. Like they picked up the phone. You could talk to a real person right away. Like try that with any other company. Try that with Amazon. You know, and people would go to CD Baby instead of Amazon because we pick up the phone. Simple as that. It is, it's just alarming how simple it is and, and how, you know, little things, how we forget about them. You know, I'll give you a sort of same, you know, example, Derek. Uh, you know, I travel, we have, you know, a lot of people across three different brands in, in Canada and it's hard, we get bigger, right? It's hard to, you know, some people we see once a year, once every two years, but I've really focused. I mean, I've made it, you know, a real mission of mine to remember names and I can't just, it blows my mind where, oh yeah, DLC is a great company or they're good to work with or they have great branding or they have great tools. You know, how many times I've heard people just say, you know, the CEO remembers my name, something just as simple mm -hmm. as that. It's like answering the phone, Huge. right? Just, it's, yep. it's just, you know what I mean? And, and I mean, I literally, I, and it's not a perfect science, but when I literally meet someone, you know, I literally will sneak off to the bathroom or turn around and I'll make a little note on my iPhone, right? Just, you know, yeah. met him and this Barry has a team of five, just so that I have to go back to it. I mean, it's, but there's so many examples of, of just like little things like that, that actually make a difference. The other thing that yeah. you speak about um, is execution. And you say, you know, there's a million great ideas out there and there's, there's, a, you know, um, there's just the value of, 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 of a great idea is, is zilch, right? But the value of a great idea with execution is millions and millions and millions of dollars. Um, I couldn't agree with you more on that. It, it, it's just something that, you know, we got to get very, very good at. Any strategies or tips how to be better executors? Mm. Um, air on the side of trying things. Um... Now, <laughs> people get to be people have a kind of perfectionist tendency to not want to do something until everything's right. But in I believe it's in the software world, there's a brilliant saying. It says, uh, if you're not embarrassed by your first release, you released too late. <laughs> like, you should be embarrassed by your first release of your software, of your company, of your project, whatever. Like you're supposed to launch it 
when it's still embarrassing. Uh, like, that's how it's supposed to feel. It's always supposed to feel too early when you release something to the world. Um, I think that's my biggest tip. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've had so many conversations over the years that say to people, just start, right? What is the secret? Yeah. Just start. Just try something. It doesn't have to be a perfect mouse track. You don't have to, you know what, say I'm going to start in six months. I'm preparing this. I'm building this. I'm getting it ready. Mm-hmm. Like, don't build a perfect race car, right? Just get a, Just get something with an engine and four wheels on the road. Right. Because your business plan is going to change so much always. Right. Like it's amazing how many times we think we're going to do something a certain way in business. And then we're open and we actually listen. It completely changes. Right. You know, it's a complete 360. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, love the the explanation on that. So. So, Derek, here you are, you know, obviously, CD, we talk about CD Baby because, you know, you're going up against Goliath. It was the early days. Um, You know, it was a business that you sort of started accidentally. I mean, you overcame all these incredibly uh, amazing hurdles. I think what I what I really admire sort of most after, you know, getting to know you through your sort of books a little bit, and I think you you actually coined it yourself, right? You know, life is a symphony and you are the conductor. And if I look at you, you've traveled and been all over the world. You've lived in the UK, you've lived in New Zealand. I think you're still in New Zealand now. You've, you know, you've been in New York City as a musician. You've been, you know, to Asia. Uh, you've done a lot of different things. You're really living life on your terms. Maybe just bring us up to speed now. Like, what are you doing and how's it going? I know you have a little boy now that I think is 10 or 11. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was living in Singapore just because I wanted the challenge. I just moved there because I'd never lived in Asia before. And Singapore, is if you if you haven't uh, spent more than a couple days there, it's, it's kind of Asia light in the sense that it's like, for us people coming from the West, it's like people in Asia consider it a Western city. And you come from the West and it feels like a very Asian city, but everybody speaks English. So it was like a nice, easy place. So I loved Singapore. I loved it with all my head. Um, I felt at home right away. It was such an interesting place to be. And my son was born there, but I wanted him to grow up in nature. So we moved to New Zealand really just for the purpose of him growing up here. And uh, he has, and it's great. But uh, yeah, these days, um, you know, when I sold CD Baby, I sold it for so much money that I I would be a fool to do anything for the money ever again. Uh, yeah. That would feel like hoarding. So everything I do now is not for the money. So like you, you mentioned my books at the beginning of the phone call, like all of my books, I give all of the money to charity, like not a single dollar of it comes that's to me incredible. and that's on purpose. Because uh, I just don't want it. I just don't want any more money than I already have. So yeah. the whole reason I'm selling books is to uh, raise money for charity. I've donated over uh, half a million dollars to Against Malaria Foundation and a couple hundred thousand to uh, help babies, newborns not die in India and wow. things like that. Uh, that. That feels better to me than having it come to me so I can get a new car or something like that, you know. So wow. um, uh, I'm just writing uh, my books, which is to me the greatest intellectual challenge you could tell in my book anything you want, like what I was doing with CD Baby and all the questions you're asking me today. Yeah. It's like constantly thinking of everything somewhat philosophically from scratch. You know, why are we sending an email confirmation? Why do we have a phone number? Why, you know, what's the purpose of this? What's the purpose of that? And so now I'm just doing the same thing with life and yeah. um, questioning well, it all, which is yeah. a good thing. So, so, so your love now is just is sharing your wisdom, making people smile, writing books. You're speaking, of course um doing that sort of stuff is there is is there any new projects any new books on the horizon for you are you always uh working on one yeah there's always a next book yeah my most recent one is called how to live and honestly i think it's like the greatest thing i've ever done it's my masterpiece if i if i sorry what if i died having done nothing but that book i'd be i'd say that that was a life well lived and sorry that book was the the most recent one right how to live yeah yeah that one that's on the screen yeah how to live i'm gonna get my assistant that's my masterpiece uh, it's interesting. One of our uh, one of our long term uh, brokers, I've seen him on the screen, Norm Jurafsky, a good friend of mine, great guy. I think he sums you up really well. He goes, Derek is the unentrepreneur, goes against uh, conventional wisdom, which I absolutely love. That's that, that's a nice. great quote. <laughs> can we say can we say un- unpreneur? Yeah. Can we? Are yeah, we going to coin a new term? Unpreneur. Sure. Yeah, that's great. That's, Thank uh, you. That's really awesome. It's a nice compliment. So, if you look at sort of life today and your and your your journey. What is it that you maybe are still working on trying to accomplish? What what haven't uh, you got there yet? Oh God, there's you know the uh, the ocean gets deeper as you go into it. Right. <laughs> there's the more you go into anything, the harder it gets, the deeper it gets. So uh, both with my programming and my writing, 
uh, I just keep loving those two things. I keep coming back to those two things. I love programming because programming is philosophical. Every time you're programming, you're starting from scratch going, okay, what's what's the real point of this? Why does this function exist? What do we really need to do here? Yeah. And same thing with my writing. So yeah, I just keep diving deeper into those two and things. you didn't grow up as a programmer. You didn't go to school for it. You just went to the library and bought a book and uh, started self uh, teaching yourself, I, I believe. Yeah, it was only out of pure necessity for once CD Baby grew beyond what I could do manually typing every line of HTML myself, I had to learn programming in order to like have people be able to place an order while I was sleeping. Um, yeah. So I learned programming just out of pure necessity, uh, but just ended up loving it. Yeah, that's great. Um, so if you look at sort of, you know, obviously you're a lifelong learner and you love to read, you shared it with us already and you recommended a couple of books. Is there is there one or two other books that sort of stand out for you that we could share with our uh, viewers today that, you know, really Actually, resonate with you? I will share all of them with you. Perfect. If you go to go to my website, sive.rs slash book. B-O-O-K. Yeah. If you go to that URL, since 2007, I've been taking detailed notes on every single book I read. Every time I read a book, I'm there with like, you know, yeah. highlighting my favorite ideas, underlining. And then when I'm done, I type them all out into a text file and I post it on my website for free. So there's over 350 books there. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, there's only th there's already 350 books there and I sort them by how highly I recommend them. So if you just start at the top of that list, those are the best books I've ever read. And you can get a little preview of looking at the notes. And again, I just do that. It's like that's my you know, contribution to the community to try to encourage other people to check out things I've loved. Yeah, I, you know what? I absolutely love it. And I love the fact that you share so much. You're such a generous soul. And, you know, it just resonates uh, uh, through you. Absolutely incredible. Um, so, Derek, what, what are you most grateful for? Huh. Uh, my limbs. I like having limbs. <laughs> I recently <laughs> met somebody that doesn't have limbs. It's yeah. really nice having limbs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely crazy. Uh, very, very uh, different answer. Very cool answer. Um, the, one of the last things I want to I want to uh, touch on, and I've heard this before, but I like the way you explained it. Um, you know, when you're deciding on whether to do something or not to do something, you say anything less than a wow is a no. Actually, what you say is hell yeah or no. How has that sort of, you know, helped you make decisions over the life? And, and, and how important is that in our businesses today? Because we get inundated with requests. You know, we always we take on way more than we can take on. And it just it, it, it's very hard on us. Yeah, when you're in that situation, when you're overwhelmed, it's it's important to raise the bar all the way up. I think we have a kind of uh, fear of missing out that if we don't say yes to a lot of things, like, well, what if one of them turns out to be good? They're like lottery tickets. You never know. Right. But you have to you, usually you, you learn this the hard way that if you spread yourself too thin, then nothing gets done. Right. Uh, nothing gets done well. So what I realized shortly after selling CD Baby and I was inundated with offers and people wanting to work with me, um, I just raised the bar all the way up and I said no to almost everything because the biggest lesson was this, that if you say no enough that you've actually got free time, then it means when something comes along that's really like a big wow, then you actually have the time to throw yourself into it completely. Like then a big project comes up, you know, we want you to be in this movie or we, you know, we're starting this new venture. You can say, you know what? I've been saying no to a thousand things. Yes. Yes to this. And I've actually got 10 hours a day to, to throw into this right now because I've said no to everything else. I think it's a great way to live, to, to do, say yes to less and just do a few things really well. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, love that. You know, um, it's I've been saying for years too, right? Just get really good at saying no, right? And it's so hard to say no because you want to say yes. It's just absolutely, you know, gut wrenching to say no. It's funny when I started when I started my business seventeen years ago, there was a sign shop shop next door, and I went next door and I, I had a sign made. Why yes? So still in my office today. It says yes. Find a way to say yes to see the most opportunities. But as wow. I've gotten, you know, sort of like hey, we're seventeen years later. You know, I say to my assistant all the time, let's find a way to say no and only yes to the most, you know, critical things because it just gets absolutely yeah. overwhelming. It's uh, it's amazing how your mindset changes, obviously, over the years. Going back to, well, to, it's, to going back. Sorry, sorry. It's not just yeah. over the years, though. It, 
I, I just want to be clear. The hell yeah or no strategy is only for when you're already overwhelmed with opportunity and it's actually making you implode. Then you need to raise the bar all the way up. But the problem is I actually hear from some 19-year-olds that you know, heard Tim Ferriss praise the hell yeah or no strategy because he used it for his overwhelmed life. And they think, yeah, I just got out of high school. And you know what? I'm saying hell yeah or no to everything. I say, no, 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 no. That's the wrong strategy. Like, you're at a time in your life where you actually need to say yes to everything. Like, this is only a specific tool for a specific situation. At other times in your life, like, you know, you asked me at the very beginning of the call, how did I get into the music business? It was by saying yes to a $75 pig show. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, so... I think usually saying yes to everything is the right strategy. And you keep doing that until something goes really well. Then you double down on that thing. And then you're very successful. The whole world wants a piece of you. Everybody wants you to join them. And that's when you have to raise the bar up and start saying, hell yeah, no. But don't do it too early. That is beautifully articulated, beautifully explained. Thank you for that, right? Um, so, you know, one of the things that you said, saying less to, saying yes, uh, sorry, saying less to yes is a way out if you feel overwhelmed. That's perfect. That's an absolute perfect way. Listen, we're just winding down. I just, um, you know, Derek, this has been an absolute pleasure. I, I'm going to have my assistant order all of your books and I'm gonna get through them and I'm gonna order a whole bunch so I can give them away, uh, you know, on a regular basis to our team and franchise owners and, and top <laughs> agents. Guys, if you uh, want a book, uh, post it, thank Derek uh, in this. Someone tiny little talk books. Talk about how great <laughs> the level up today was with Derek. And we're going to send you a book. If you've tagged us somewhere else on social media, you've made a comment, we're going to send you uh, the book that I actually mostly referred to today, right? Anything you want. Absolutely incredible read. Very, very simple. I mean, as Derek said, you can read it almost in an hour. But the way he actually articulates and explains these principles, we went through maybe eight or 10 principles today. He's got 40 in this book. And, you know, I mean, as a guy who's been doing this for a very long time and read a lot of books, uh, I thought the you know, the sort of simplicity of this book was extraordinary. Absolutely incredible. I love that, you know, socially, your social initiatives and you're giving back and, you know, um, you're, you're certainly, you know, you wouldn't be considered a capitalist. I mean, you are very generous in your time. You are very generous in what you do with your life and your business. I think it's extraordinary. And what an extraordinary interview. Thank you so much, Derek. Thanks, Gary. Absolute pleasure, Derek. Stay on the call until after we wind down here. I'll just get some, uh, I'll get some coordinates on you for some other things that I'm thinking right now. Uh, but to all of my, um, the viewers and listeners to DLC, MTC, MA, all the agents across Canada, thank you so much, guys. If I don't see you again before Christmas, which I probably won't, please have an incredible uh, a holiday. Uh, get some downtime, spend it with family. And I can't wait to see you for the uh, State of the Union kickoff in early January. Thanks very much. Have a great day, guys. Hey, bud.